The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Grab your coffee and sit down with us to discuss financial fraud the elder trap. This is really one of the gritty areas of investigation. Millions of Americans are victims of fraud each year, and many of those who are elderly and over 65. Who are the most likely to exploit the financial resources of the elderly? Those who are the most vulnerable and who will be exploited. Is it your mother, your father, your sibling, or your friend, or your neighbor? What can you do about it? What are some of the red flags that family members and others can heed when fraud is suspected? With baby boomers aging, the U.S. elders are quickly becoming a significant portion of the population. Expert witness and forensic question document examiner M. Patricia Fisher, along with licensed private investigator and certified fraud examiner Kelly Paxton, both of whom specialize in elder fraud, will discuss the rapid growth of elder financial exploitation key identifiers, and key recommendations to protect your loved one's financial assets. Good morning, Kelly and Patty. Good morning. Uh, Kelly Paxton is a certified fraud examiner, licensed private investigator, and holds a BA in international studies with an emphasis in economics. In 1992, she was recruited by the U.S. Customs Service for financial industry expertise in commodities, securities, and insurance investments, and spent five years there where she was assigned to the Money Laundering, Currency, and Narcotics Group. As a financial analyst for the Washington County Fraud Identity Theft Enforcement Team, say that three times fast, she provided investigation and analytical support for numerous embezzlement, elder abuse, and identity theft cases. Kelly's also a financial industry regulatory authority, national public arbiter, She's a past director and a director at large for the Oregon chapter of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Let me just say by way of introduction that the subject of elder fraud is a very broad topic with many facets that we could not possibly cover adequately in one hour. My hope is that we can give you enough to spark your interest to look into it further if you have a need. Kelly. First of all, what is a financial industry regulatory authority national public arbiter? Uh, We work the cases when there is a question um, regarding a brokerage account. So I do arbitration for securities-related cases that are brought before. um, It used to be that um, 
NASD, and now they call it FINRA. So basically, if you have a question about your broker's ability, um, most people may not realize you don't sue your broker, but you are forced to go to arbitration, and that's what an arbitrator does, those type of cases. So when you sign up with a brokerage account, for a brokerage account, you actually have to sign off your rights uh, to, to sue the brokerage company. Yes, you do. Okay. All right. How did you come, become a private investigator? Um, it was kind of a circuitous route, but basically I've always been very curious as to what people do with their money, um, whether they do it themselves or, you know, someone else is taking care of their money. So um, I became a special agent, and then um, at that point uh, we had kids, and it's it's a little bit difficult to be doing 24-7 work. And so um, I just stayed on the periphery and decided that I wanted to concentrate on embezzlement and elder financial fraud and also some domestic relations work. Anywhere where there's an angle of financial sort of, you know, misappropriation. So that's Mm -hmm. my area of expertise. Okay. And when you say special agent, that was with the U.S. Customs, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. And you're a certified fraud examiner. To achieve that designation requires special training. What is that? Uh, Generally, you have a college uh, degree. Um, There is a little bit of, um, you can have professional experience also. But um, you do that, you uh, study four different areas, um, which uh, include accounting, auditing, criminology, sociology, fraud investigation, loss prevention, and law relating to fraud. And then you take a test, and you have to have so many years of investigations before you're qualified to have the designation. I see. And could you, could you define for us elder financial fraud? Sure. Um, I consider elder financial fraud to be, um, well, the actual sort of definition is it taking money that belongs to, sorry, I'm getting to my little uh, definition here because I don't want to mess that up, but um, basically taking money or funds from someone who, you know, the person's vulnerable. Sorry. It's the the actual definition is the illegal, illegal taking, misuse, or concealment of funds, property, or assets of a vulnerable elder at risk for harm by another due to their changes in physical functioning, mental functioning, or both. Okay, so it's the knowing and intentional or a negligent act by a caregiver. That a, a caregiver or a family member or a trusted person advisor, yes. Okay, all right. And in the state of Oregon... Anyone over the age of 65, and people might disagree with this, is considered to be an elder. Okay. I'm going to disagree with that, but that's another <laughs> subject. All right. Okay. And t- so tell us about your experience in investigating elder financial abuse. Uh, one of the first cases I worked, it was a great little old man. Um, you know, wife had died lived on a nice piece of property that had kind of been encroached by commercial development, still had his cows and everything. Um, One day a guy shows up and he yells to the guy, hey, you remember me? And the older guy said, no. And he goes, I used to deliver your papers, you know, when I was a little boy. Well, it turns out that no, he never did, and he actually was a gypsy. And he became very entrenched in this older man's life. And he had business deals that, oh, I just need $5,000. And basically, he took the guy to the tune of a quarter of a million dollars within about nine months. 
Wow. And um, it all that was, you know, a gypsy sort of case, a stranger on um, stranger case. But a lot of the cases I worked are actually family members. Mm-hmm. And that becomes kind of even more difficult because you get, if you have, you know, more than one family member, a sibling that's in charge of mom, the other siblings might feel that they're taking advantage of the parent. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of cases like that. I so see. I would say the majority of them were more family member type of cases. And what are some of the identifiers? I mean, when somebody calls you and says that they think their mother or father or neighbor is um, being exploited, what are what are the questions you ask? Um, well, first I would ask, you know, what is the initial thing that, you know, brings you in here? And usually someone will say, well, I just, you know, things aren't adding up. My brother, you know, he's not working and he just bought a new car. Um, my sister, you know, her husband's unemployed and they just took the family down to Disneyland. Or I've gone to the house and I see bills piling up. So they kind of have a general sense of unease. Mm-hmm. And then when you start asking the more specific questions, then they're like, well, you know, they bring up the fact that the brother also has substance abuse issues. I see. So things like that, then when you kind of drill down, then they're a little bit more forthcoming, and it turns out that there are additional issues. So where do you start then? So you you, you interview the person who's making the complaint. Right. And then what do you do next? Um, well, at that point, if... If it does seem like there definitely is something, I suggest you always get an attorney. Um, the attorney would hire me because of attorney-client privilege, but, um, sorry, there's a bit of an echo. Um, you, you want an attorney. So an attorney is going to be able to sort of guide you, and you have to look at the risk-reward. You know, if it's just, unfortunately, if it's just, you know, dad's taking the favorite child out to dinner, you know, once a week and you're not part of it, well, it doesn't make sense. But if you see that there's a new Lexus in the driveway, you you know, that's where, and there's a lot of money that might be involved. If there isn't a lot of money, then you also have to look at the risk-reward. Okay. So um, you say, you refer them to an attorney typically. Much of your work has been really criminal cases because of your work with um, your past work, correct? Yes. Okay. So when does it change from being a civil case to a criminal case? Um, you know, that that's depending if it's a family case, the family really has to think hard about if they want it to go criminally and if they're going to be willing to become witnesses against a family member. Um, and some families will do that with not a problem at all. But... Um, if it decide if they decide that they want it to go the criminal route, and it is a person's decision to have it go the criminal route, a lot of times. I mean, if there's no family member, it's stranger on stranger, and say adult protective services gets involved, then it's not a question of going civil or criminal. It just would be criminal. But when a family is involved, they have a lot of sort of the choice to make whether they want to take it to law enforcement. And at the end of the day. A family may say, you know what, much as I don't think Johnny was right about this, I also don't want to see Johnny to go to jail. 
So the family has to come together and decide, and that's where an attorney would probably be helpful in this situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and do all uh, police departments have the resources to conduct a financial fraud investigation? Well, and that's where I would come in. If a family does decide to go that route, a lot of police departments don't have these type of resources, and police don't really become policemen or policewomen to um, do spreadsheets. So they do it for sort of the action. But there are a lot of um, special teams throughout municipalities in the country that specialize in it. But where I would come in is I would put the case together and do the spreadsheet, work with the checkbook, and present it and act kind of as a liaison between the family and law enforcement. Okay. And kind of it's a little bit of, you know, a salesmanship to, you know, this is a good case, this is important, we need to get, you know, this taken care of. Okay. And and then... So you're, if there's law enforcement is involved, you're acting as a liaison, but if there's an attorney involved, you then would be acting under the direction of the attorney? Yes. So your role changes a little bit with depending on the type of case it is. Right, exactly. Okay. All right. So um, what, other than you mentioned a new car or, or a, the bills piling up, are there any other what would be considered red flags that come to mind that would make you give you a feeling of discomfort if that was your parent? Um, you know what? All of a sudden they have this new BFF, best friend forever, and, you know, they're younger. Um, women, although women are the majority of victims in elder financial fraud, fraud when men become the victims, a lot of times it's a sweetheart scam. So all of a sudden your dad, who's 82, is dating someone who's 40. Well, I mean, that might be okay, but it also might not be okay. Um, when the caregivers start handling the finances, um, you know, I personally, I wouldn't have a caregiver handle the finances. Right. There are a lot of options out there, daily right. money managers, your accountant, your bookkeeper. You would not want a caregiver to be handling the finances. Okay. All right. Let's take a break. You're listening to today's topic, Financial Fraud, the Elder Trap, on PIs Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Talking to licensed private investigator and certified fraud examiner Kelly Paxton about elder financial fraud. Now let me introduce you to M. Patricia Fisher, a board-certified document examiner. Patricia has qualified to testify in over 200 court proceedings in both federal and state court, in addition to testifying in arbitrations and other hearings. For the past 30 years, she specialized in the examination of question documents in probate and financial elder abuse matters, and she's frequently asked to give presentations on the subject to bar associations and other professional groups. Patricia also specializes in altered and fabricated documents and in complex cases involving multiple document issues. Altered, fabricated, and multiple document issues are frequently involved in her work in financial elder abuse where documents are an issue. Patricia holds a master's in journalism from UC Berkeley and a BA from Mills College in Oakland, California. She's a diplomat of and is certified by the Board of Forensic Document Examiners and she's a certified fraud specialist. Patty, what does it mean to be a diplomat of the Board of Forensic Document Examiners? 
Okay, Francie, it means that um, I've been certified by one of two boards whose certification programs have been accredited by the Forensic Specialties Accreditation Board. And this is a board that was established uh, through a grant from the Department of Justice uh, and along with the American Academy of Forensic Science uh, to provide courts and attorneys with certification programs that have been met and continue to meet the highest standards in their respective fields. In the case of the Board of Forensic Document Examiners, our board was the first and may still be the only board to test applicants based on scientific standards of validity and reliability. Okay. There's no licensing, per se, for document examiners? No. Is that nationwide or just in California? I believe it's nationwide. The only license I know I've ever been required to have is a business license. I see. And how did you get into the field of forensic document examination? I was first introduced to the field of handwriting and typewriting identification at a seminar in 1969. At that time, I was a high school teacher working with special students, and I had started the systematic study of handwriting in 1967. I found that I spent hours studying every detail of the handwritings I had collected while I was traveling around the country and while I was meeting new persons. I would interview the people to learn everything I could about their writings, especially if they had been ill or had some type of injury. I wanted to find out why they wrote the way they did. And I also learned from many writers how often as they grew up that they, could co- they would copy or imitate one of their parents' writings. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues that frequently arises in financial elder abuse when documents are at issue is whether a sibling who had practiced writing like mom or dad from the time he or she was in elementary school, did that same sibling now forge the handwriting or the signatures of the deceased parent? Anyway, that's how I started in the study of handwriting that led to the field I'm in right now. Well, do you recall one of your earlier experiences uh, with financial elder abuse? Yes, this is before the term financial elder abuse, I believe, was coined, even though elder abuse was in common use. Uh, In 1981, I was the defense consultant on handwriting and documents for the Jonestown case. Uh, There were thousands of handwritten documents or signed documents. Jim Jones was one of the first persons to be involved in elder abuse on a mass level by taking the elder's Social Security checks, having them sign over their property to him, and having them sign blank deeds uh, so he could use them when he wanted to transfer their property. And you're talking about uh, the Jonestown case where all the people took Kool-Aid and died in Guyana? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that was uh, an amazing case to be involved in. It was amazing from the handwriting, too, because Jones would have uh, his followers write confessions for things they never did, uh, and the Historical Society in San Francisco still has probably the largest collection of documents where you can still see the unsigned or the signed documents which were either notarized or left blank, mm-hmm. um, you know, so they could use them at a later time. And a lot of people actually in California, well, across the country, but particularly in California, were drawn into that fraud. That's right, and especially elders. There were just a tremendous amount of elders drawn into that. You've listed ten red flags, Patty, on your PowerPoint it's a PowerPoint for our listeners that is linked on the PIC Classified website, www.picclassified.com. That could mean an elder is being financially abused. How did you learn about these red flags, Patty? I learned about these red flags uh, very early on because I was working on probate cases, um, you know, as far back as the 70s. And over the years, um, I would keep hearing the same kinds of stories being told. A client would call, they were distraught. Um, they were upset because somebody in the family was, you know, trying to take the estate many times at the same time that member was being abused. Um, and there got to be a point after hearing so many stories 
uh, in different themes, it was the same theme that when the potential client started telling me the story, I would stop and finish it, and the family members would just say, yes, that is what happened. So hearing these stories over and over again for me became the red flags, and those are red flags that you've posted on your website and uh, I think are very good ones. Okay. And Kelly told about uh, a case that she was involved in, and I, I really understand that even though that specific facts may be varied on a case, there's a general theme that prevails. What are some of the themes? Um, some of the themes are, well, in terms of the red flags, it's like, you know, the person is a, a recluse, for example, uh, and that person has a lot of money. And that's, you know, to me almost a red flag because there's no really witnesses. And then I've seen where attorneys and accountants start zeroing in. There become sometimes group kind of people that sort of zero in on the elder to gradually, you know, befriend that elder and then take the estate. Um, there's the kinds of things where the family is being uh, left out. They can't get phone calls through to the elder. They can't see the elder. The the abuser is keeping that person at a distance because they're trying to isolate that person. So they have no way of uh, they want that they want that person to be totally dependent um, on the let's say the abuser. The abuser wants the person to be dependently dependent on the abuser so that that abuser can take ultimate control and ultimately take the estate. Um, I think each one of my red flags sort of represents, you know, a variation on the themes that I've seen over and over over the years. Do you have a case that you could talk about? Um, yes, I have cases that have gone to trial. Um, for example, one of these cases uh, involved an um, elderly man whose son forged deeds to take his property. And this Father was still alive while those happened, was able to sit in at the trial. I don't know if he testified or not. Um, the son brought in the notary or his notary to say, yes, she was present when these deeds had been forged, or not forged, when they'd been signed. And I was able to show that the deeds were not only not genuine signatures, but were actually those of the sons. And what made this case so interesting and challenging is that the son had written over the question signatures with this highly embellished writing of his uh, that obscured much of the signatures that were in question below that were also in a blue pen. So I had a wonderful assistant at the time who simply took pixel by pixel in a very meticulous process to remove all the overwriting of the sons on top of the signatures, and we were successful in doing that, and I have one of the exhibits up on my website uh, that somebody could go to to see to see how we were able to do that to isolate it, and then we could clearly see that that was actually the son's writing and not that of the father's. Okay, and I'll give that website at the end of the program. Okay. Interesting. So, um, so am I to understand that you can actually identify which signature is signed first on a document and which? Is a subsequent signature? Well, I did, that was not even the issue in this particular case. The it, it, it appeared that the well, if if my memory is correct, the question signatures were written first, and then the son wrote the signatures next, just because they were in that line. You know, they were one after the other. But the son's writing was so embellished, and he just wrote over. I mean, I thought this was a very unusual. I think a fairly clever way of trying to obscure a, uh, a forged signature. Actually, there were two forged signatures. Um, by doing this, not expecting somebody to take the time to remove all the information that was concealing the fact that he had done it. And Patty, you're you're often brought in 
in a probate case where the person is already deceased and there's an issue of maybe a holographic will, um, documents that have been signed prior to the decedent's death, or something like that. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And when I say holographic will, could could you explain what that means? Yes. A holographic will is one that is written completely in the hand of the decedent. So it doesn't, in California, it doesn't have to be dated. It can just be, I give you all my property and handwriting. It doesn't matter what it's on. Uh, the, the bottom line that I've learned over the years is the court's just concerned what the intent of the person was. But it's all in their handwriting. Okay. And this, t- typically what happens is some relative comes up with a, a will they just happen to find sometimes months after the person has passed away. Is that correct? Well, usually these holographic wills, if they're suspect, surface after the probate. Well, maybe rarely before the probate, sometimes before the probate. But let's say if the probate's not going the way a particular person wants it to, then all of a sudden holographic wills surface, signed documents surface. This happens all the time from my experience. Okay. All right. And with a case like that, then you're really, um, your your process is, to look at the documents and, and see if you can identify if the signature is authentic or not. Right. My process is then to work with the attorney. I'm like, Kelly, I, I, I work with the attorney because the attorney is the only person who's going to be able to really go through the discovery and get the documents. Many times it takes months and months to get documents because it starts out that the person says, well, I don't know. I, don't, I only have one or two signatures. And I've seen it happen so many times over the years that sometimes it's even better for the case to be delayed because documents continue to surface. And we have to get a reliable known sample of writing as close in time to the question signatures or writings as possible. And many times that's very difficult because the elder is not writing that much. Uh, writing takes a lot of energy, and gradually elders oftentimes uh, have caretakers or family members start writing out their checks, and they just sign them. So it takes it usually takes a long time to get all the information I'm going to need to be able to determine whether the signature is genuine or not or the writing is genuine or not. You must spend hundreds of hours on a case like that. Well, I have spent I won't I have these cases are very labor intensive. So it's not uncommon to spend 25, 50, 100. I think in one case I actually went up to 200 hours. Uh, to resolve the issue because of the, of the complexity of, of the cases. Okay. Well, we're going to need to take a break right here. Uh, this is a good time. Would you like to know more about investigating elder financial fraud? We will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. News. Opinion. Can you hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm speaking with two experts in the area of elder financial fraud, board-certified document examiner and certified fraud specialist, Patricia Fisher, and private investigator and certified fraud examiner, Kelly Paxton. We're continuing our discussion. Patty, just because there's a red flag that you've talked about, can you assume there's um, financial elder abuse? No. What the red flags mean is that there's a good reason to start investigating immediately. And Kelly brought up another very, very important red flag when she talked about substance abuse, because I've heard that story over and over again that, you know, one of the members who was in the process of attempting to take the estate through documents also had a substance abuse problem. Um, what it really does, is just, it just, you should immediately start to investigate to find out if there is, in fact, elder abuse and not wait. Um, for example, in one case, well, actually, this was not an elder abuse case, it was just a probate case, that the attorney was suspicious because the uh, nephew, who was now supposedly going to inherit under the will that appeared after the probate started, had tried to burn down the elder's home, and the elder had to get a restraining order on him, uh, for him. Now, that by itself doesn't mean the will was not genuine, but what it did mean, it's really wise to investigate. So we went the full length by getting the will out of the court 
into my laboratory to examine. We got something like 10 or 15 years of original handwriting samples and signatures, and as a result of these efforts, we were able to show that the signature was not genuine. Interesting. Kelly, I'm sure some uh, some of our listeners may be concerned about becoming caretakers, or maybe they already are caretakers, and uh, being falsely accused of elder abuse. What advice do you have for people who are are just starting out, or maybe they're already doing them doing that, um, taking care of an elder, so they can protect themselves against accusations? That's a great question, Francie. Um, the first thing, if you are a caregiver and you are also a family member at the time, I would recommend that the family as a whole gets together and discusses sort of the rules, how this is going to go. Now, if you're a daughter, you haven't been working, and all of a sudden, you know, now you're being taking care of mom, should you be compensated? Well, you know what, your sisters and brothers may agree to that. They may not agree to that, but you need to have some ground rules for the family. Mm-hmm. And if everyone has buy-in, I think that goes a lot to protecting yourself down the road. Um, one of the easiest things to do is to have duplicate bank statements and have monthly or quarterly meetings where you go through the bank statements with the other family members. So it's very transparent and out in the open. Um, Never commingle funds, not even a dime, because the minute you commingle one of mom's or dad's, you know, social security checks into your bank account, that's when problems can start because now you've opened up all your records to have to go through and defend yourself. Mm-hmm. So never commingle funds. And if there is family issues, which a lot of times everyone doesn't want to think their family is dysfunctional, but um, there are <laughs> special mediators that do elder mediation. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That's something I wasn't aware of. Now, there was just a case that came out um, yesterday, I guess it was, and MSNBC regarding Huguette, I guess that's how you pronounce it, Huguette Clark the reclusive heiress, heiress, I can't even talk this morning. Um, (laughs) Do you know a little bit about that case, Kelly? Um, Yeah, I just saw that on the news last night, and it was just so incredibly timely. And um, one of the things right off the bat was the fact that her accountant is a felon. So um, she's also a recluse. She's over 100 years old. Um, It's just, you know, kind of, if you're going to have, I mean, a trusted advisor out there, I don't think I'd want my accountant to have a record. Yeah. I, this is, uh, if our listeners are interested in this, uh, the headline is Huguette, H-U-G-U-E-T-T-E, Clark, the reclusive heiress has signed a will, attorney says. That's the headline. The attorney is a man by the name of Wallace or Wally Bock, B-O-C-K, with Collier Halpern Newbert. Noletti and Bach, and the accountant that has been charged is Irving Clamser. This is a case, I guess, out of New York. Um, of course, it involves an awful lot of money. Her father, Hugh Clark's father, was supposed to be a, the very first um, person who was identified as having the most wealth in the country. But um, but really, it doesn't mean just because uh, somebody has a lot of money doesn't mean that 
they will be abused, and it doesn't mean if somebody only has a little bit of money and maybe only gets Medicare that they won't be abused. Isn't that true? Kelly? Uh, definitely. Um, you know, everything is relative. Um, it's someone's idea of winning the lottery might be someone else's idea of barely making the bill. So, um, And people are desperate, especially people with substance abuse, so where someone might think, it's not worth it to steal $1,000. $1,000 to someone who is homeless and, um, you know, has substance abuse issues, well, that's like winning the lottery. So everything is relative in these type of cases. Sure, sure. And the, the identifiers are the same regardless of whether it's a family member, a neighbor who becomes a caretaker, uh, somebody that's hired in as a caretaker. All, really, all of the flags are the same, aren't they? Definitely, I think, you know, they are. And people people should trust their gut. I mean, a lot of times if it's too late and it's gotten to the point where Patty is involved and people will go back and say, you know, I just didn't have a good feeling about that person or, mm-hmm. you know, it was unusual. They used to always go to, you know, coffee with their friends and then all of a sudden it just stopped. So when you talk to people after the fact, they're like, I should have listened, you know. Sure. Yeah, I would I would concur with that as well. In fact, what everything uh, Kelly's been saying so far also matches with my perceptions and, and my experience. Even though I don't get involved in that end of it, I'm basically staying, you know, just with the documents. But it's just uh, over so many years, you know, I've had so many cases. I've worked on hundreds of these cases and um, spent thousands, thousands, thousands of hours. And you just and they go on for maybe two or three or four or five years sometimes. So I hear all the nuances, and, and I think Kelly is very right when she said they sense something and to trust your gut, because by the time it gets to me, it gets very, very intense, uh, even more so than if the person had mm-hmm. just taken the time to do the investigation and stop things before they got this far. Sure. Uh, Patty, you've testified in so many cases. Is there one that stands out that you could tell us about? Well, the one I testified in the one that um, I mentioned already, uh, there was another one, uh, Kelly mentioned something about a lottery. I actually testified in a case where uh, the father had at one time won an $11 million lottery and had been very generous with his children. Uh, at death time, however, um, the children still wanted all the estate. They didn't want his current wife to get anything. So what they did, from what I understand, is that on his deathbed, uh, they Put a, he was in the hospital, and they put the curtain around him, and supposedly he signed this will, except that later one of the nurses whose signature was on it testified that she had not seen this will witnessed, that the attorney had forced her to go down and sign it. Well, this did not sit very well with the judge. And both the will, which is written by the daughter, which she eventually admitted, was also not a genuine signature. So that was another testimony. A lot of things I do, most of the things I do settle before they go to court. And um, so that's where I see a lot of, of what goes on. And a recent case involved a 90-year-old woman where the caretakers began to gradually siphon off her state, which she wanted to go to her disabled daughter. And eventually that case settled for $2.4 million after several years once the documents uh, were started to be uh, asked to be, demanded, to, to be delivered to the laboratory. And I don't know whether that really had that much impact on the final settlement. But what I do know is that when documents do have problems and we start really pushing for those documents, oftentimes things will go a lot faster uh, because that can be the final you know, nail in the coffin if these are not genuine. That sounds like it was a case with a happy ending for the person that was making the complaint, not 
of course, not the person that was doing the deed. Are there other times when the abuser has been successful in achieving what they were trying to do? I would expect, I expect that the abusers are successful in many times. And in one case that I can recall that was fairly recent, there were several red flags were present. Um, and the caretaker had an excuse for everything. This is what I find very often. What the caretaker will say, well, the elder asked me to do this. The elder told me to do this. The elder did this. For example, uh, this particular elder was a 90-year-old or in his 90s. He's a recluse, a hoarder. He hadn't thrown out probably a paper in his entire life in a house that had he had lived in for all 90 of his years, then all of a sudden the elder uh, asked the caretaker for a shredder, and when in fact this was the caretaker's explanation for why two floors originally filled with papers had been cleaned out, he said the elder wanted me to bring in the shredder. And shortly after the caretaker appeared on the scene, the elder's writing notes because he didn't have any handwriting to use for com- you know comparison, making wire transfers, writing a holographic will, giving the caretaker the bulk of the state, and the caretaker takes the elder off to a probate attorney to get his affairs in order. And in this case, the attorney felt because the elder sister, who was the plaintiff, was in her 90s, that the stress would be too great to pursue the case in trial and through an appeal, so it was settled. So in a way, the caretaker really got away, although not with the whole estate in this case. Amazing. We're going to a commercial break here. Back in a few. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. 
would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Patricia Fisher and Kelly Paxton have been giving us helpful hints about financial elder fraud and what you can do. I'm sure some of you that are listening to this program are wondering how you can find services in your own community. So I'm going to give you this number if you grab a pen and a piece of paper and to write this down. The Elder Care Locator directs callers to senior information and referral telephone lines in their communities. And these programs direct callers to local programs and services including home-delivered meal programs, adult daycare programs, support services, legal assistance, service for caregivers, and other things. But this would be a good place to start. The Elder Care Locator, 1-800-677-1116. 1-800-677-1116. Then, um, usually, adult protective services. Each state um, designates a lead agency or agencies to assume responsibility for investigating abuse reports. And so adult protective services would be a place to start. If they don't handle it, and in some states they don't, they may be able to refer you to somebody. It's listed, usually listed under the Department of Human Services or Department of Social Services. Of course, you can always call law enforcement, but you have to have a criminal case for law enforcement to talk to you about that. And then often there's a long-term care Obman program, um, and they are federally funded programs that investigate reports of abuse in residential care facilities and nursing homes. And then there's, of course, Medicare fraud and control units and things like that. Um, Patty and Kelly, I'm sure you have uh, some thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with. Um, Patty, why don't we start with you first? Well, I would say that just learn the red flags and don't wait um, when you suspect financial elder abuse. I, I thought Kelly made a very good point about the mediation. If there's problems in the family, and I don't know any families whether are problem-free, and what has been festering for like 60 or 70 years with some of the siblings just comes out in spades uh, when 
uh, say, a document surfaces, and the document is usually just the tip of the iceberg. I think the Internet is an excellent resource, too. Even Wikipedia has an excellent um, description of elder abuse and some of the additional signs. The ten red flags that I've given are just ten. There are many more. These are just the ones that I've heard most of the time over the years, along with the substance abuse, that these stories are over and over again. So I think being informed, don't trust your gut, just like Kelly said. Uh, don't wait. Start the investigation. And at least then you don't end up with this tremendous sense of guilt that I see so many clients end up with because they didn't act fast enough. Very good advice. Kelly, what do you have to offer? Uh, One of the big things is if you are going to become a caregiver for a family member or a close friend, definitely protect yourself because caregiving is an extremely difficult um, profession to take on or even if you're just doing it you know, to help out, but you need to protect yourself, and protecting yourself is as easy as having transparency in the bank account records, um, transparency with the family members, because the last thing you want is the cop showing up on your door, which can happen, or also a civil lawsuit. You may be perfectly innocent, but you're going to have to defend yourself down the road, and they're expensive. So definitely protect yourself and protecting yourself by looking at the red flags, looking at my PowerPoint. There's a lot of resources out there to be able to do that. And I'm sure that financial fraud goes, is way underreported. Wouldn't you say that's true, Kelly? Definitely. They say that probably at, at best guess one out of five is reported. And they say it's a $2.6 billion a year loss. That's just estimates, but those, it's a pretty, you know, pretty big number there. Okay. Well, P- Patricia Fisher and Kelly Paxson, thank you for joining me today to discuss this very serious topic. How do you find services in the community? Um, I just gave you the, uh, the Elder Care Locator, 1-800-667-1116. If you have a case involving a question or fraudulent document, a will or any other financial document you suspect is a forgery, you can reach document examiner Patricia Fisher through her website, www.doclab.com. Her email is fisherdoclab, F-I-S-H-E-R-D-O-C-L-A-B at gmail.com or telephone her at 1-500, excuse me, 1-510-987-8129. Keep in mind that Patricia typically only works with an attorney, not private individuals. If you'd like to contact Kelly Paxton about investing in case of financial elder fraud, you can reach her at www.financialcaseworks.com, all one word. Her email at kelly at financialcaseworks.com or telephone her at one 956 9147 The contact information for both of these experts can be found on my website at www.pisdeclassified.com under the title of today's show, Financial Fraud, The Elder Trap. PowerPoint documents provided by both Patty and Kelly are linked on the website as well. Ten Flags of Financial Elder Abuse by Patty and Elder Financial Fraud by Kelly. Both of these give additional valuable information. If you want someone to know, you know, to listen to the show, this one and all prior shows are available 24 hours after the show airs and are included in Voice America's archives by the month they were aired. Next week's topic is privacy versus online data providers. Is there a balance? Tune in as we declassify more real stories from real investigators every Thursday morning, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. If you have a story or know of an interesting case involving a private investigator, please send an email to me 
at Francie at PISDeclassified.com. Patty and uh, Kelly, I appreciate all of your efforts today, all of the time you put in. Um, And we do have a little bit more time, so I'm wondering if you've thought, and since we um, talked just a few minutes ago, if you have anything else you'd like to add. Patty? Well, uh, if we just get started, we can't even stop. I don't, <laughs> there's so many facets to uh, financial elder abuse, even just within the limited topics that both Kelly and I have spoken about. Um, if you could come up with a suggestion, we could just go on, I think, for hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. That's probably true. Do you know, is there another case that uh, you'd like to tell people about that you were particularly involved in? Um, well, let's see. I don't know if I mentioned the case. I did mention. I think I mentioned most of the cases. Uh, actually, there are just there are endless cases. Um, but when they've gone to trial or they become part of the public record, then I'm more at liberty to talk about them. Right now, I'm having difficulty discussing some of these cases because uh, they didn't go to trial, and I'm on a consulting basis, so confidentiality is is really critical. But I find it also interesting, just to change a little bit, that, that Kelly and I, you know, as I was listening to her, um, it just reminds me of so many discussions I've had over the years with different professionals about the subject of elder abuse, and we're on the same page, and I think that I would concur with what she talked about, about the mediator. I didn't know there was such a thing as a mediator, because this is something I could have my attorneys recommend to their clients, because like I could say most families are not... Um, smoothly operating, especially at will time, all the disturbance for the last God knows how many years comes to the surface. And if a mediator can help resolve those for the family, that's just an outstanding idea. That that is a very, very good suggestion. I appreciate you offering that, Kelly. Um, You know, the thing that was significant to me was uh, Kelly's mention of the best friend, the BFF. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden, there's a neighbor who's... um, handling all of the grocery shopping for the elder or or cleaning the house or doing extra things for that person. So that was significant to me. Anytime somebody is way more involved than it appears that they should be, if there hasn't been a history of that in the past. That's excellent advice. Yeah, I thought that was really good. So thank you both again. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.